Well, today we begin a new series through the book of Exodus. Exodus, the second book of the Bible. Exodus means departure or going out. Of course, it's the story of God leading the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. It's the story of them heading out or exodusing from under the cruel hand of Pharaoh to be led by the kind and gracious and powerful hand of God. Now, if that doesn't sound relevant or interesting to you, and by the way, it it may not, uh, I'm somewhat sympathetic if it doesn't sound relevant or interesting to you. At least I'm not surprised. This being an old text about a people far away a people in slavery 3,000 or 3,500 years ago. I understand that many today just want some practical advice for better living, some chicken soup for the soul, or some life hacks that just happen to be of the religious variety. And the sooner we can get to those life hacks for better living, the better, some might think. Well... Exodus may disappoint you. It deserves a patient read and a careful study. Let me suggest some ways in which, or some reasons for which, Exodus should have our attention. It's a riveting story. It's vivid and explosive. It's the stuff that is ripe for modern movie making. It's loaded with special effects. In fact, they're real ones. Uh, But hopefully it's more than riveting. Maybe it should also be jarring and alarming. Exodus is a, a foundational story. Later scriptures like the Psalms and the Old Testament prophets and really the whole New Testament just keep going back to Exodus. Just about every event or person or thing in the book of Exodus has a New Testament counterpart. The book of Revelation shows us that in heaven, at the end of time, we'll still be singing about what God did in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is illustrative, we could say. It illustrates for us deliverance and salvation. It paints for us the picture of how our God saves and what it's for. It shows us our sin, our need, our trouble And God's purposes and power to intervene, to deliver, to to bring us to himself, and to lead us to worship. It's also a continuing story in that it picks up the storyline from the book of Genesis. In fact, the very first word in the Hebrew of the book of Exodus is and. And is the first word of Exodus in the Hebrew. And you're not supposed to begin a book with and. And what? What came before? Well, Genesis came before. So Exodus is more like act two of this grand plan and play, not really a totally separate book. We'll come back to that a little bit later. And also, we could say that Exodus deserves our attention because it shows us God. And of course, other parts of the Bible show us God as well, but It's uniquely true of Exodus. It speeds up the pace of progressive revelation quite heavily. 
Progressive revelation is God revealing himself progressively. That's the unfolding plan of the Bible. We get more the later on we go. It's a, it's a history. And, and the plan for God's progressive revelation gets a big boost when we come to Exodus and we learn more about God really quickly. Often in these spectacular, majestic ways, especially chapter 3 and following. But sometimes in simple and mundane ways, like in chapters 1 and 2, our chapters for today. Turn there if you haven't already. I'm going to read our passage for us, Exodus 1 and 2. I'll read it all at once. It'll take about six minutes, so bear with me. But it's all tied together, and it's tied together neatly. And so I want us to see the whole before we begin to break it into some parts. It reads like this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, and Nephtali. God, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. So the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithon and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread about, set abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it it with uh, bitumen and pitch. 
She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister, the baby's sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Well, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Well, five themes will help us to gather our thoughts this morning. The first being remarkable multiplication. We see remarkable multiplication in the first seven verses. And it's purposely worded like a new creation is beginning. You see, in verse 7, the people of Israel were filled, they multiplied, and the land was filled with them. Well, in Genesis 1.28, that command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth well, they're repeated here in just about the same order in Exodus 1. God is beginning again. This is something big. And of course, these early words in Exodus also echo back to 
that promise and that covenant that God made with Abraham and his offspring in the book of Genesis. Because we've already read the passage, Exodus 1 and 2, we know that's where it's going. We know verse 24, God remembered his covenant with Abraham. What covenant? Well, it's in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. Those are the three big passages. Genesis 12, 15, and 17. There God promises to Abraham that from him would come a multitude Many people, even a great nation. God says that these people will be blessed and will be a blessing to the whole world. God says that whoever blesses them will be blessed and whoever curses them will be cursed. And God also promises a land, a place, Canaan, a specific place, a place to be a to be a place of God's blessing and God's presence for his people. Now I said Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 are the big three of the Abrahamic covenant. But, but these same promises are repeated and passed down to later generations in Genesis 22 and 26 and 28 and 35 and 48. This is simply what the book of Genesis is all about. It's the raising up and the promises to one family and sometimes a messed up family. And thus there is drama and suspense in the book of Genesis along these lines, along the lines of the promises. Will Abraham and Sarah ever even have one child, let alone a multitude? Then when he comes, the question is, will that one child be sacrificed? And then in the next generation, will Esau kill his brother Jacob and wipe out the line of promise? And toward the end of the book, will a famine wipe out this covenant family in only its third or fourth generation? And that last question occupies the last dozen chapters of the book of Genesis. It's the story of Joseph. You know, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and in a winding road of events, eventually he finds himself as the prime minister in Egypt. God shows him that a famine is coming to the land. There'll be seven years of plenty, then seven years of famine. Thus, Joseph is able to sort of be the architect behind saving food during years of plenty so that you have food for years of famine. And when the famine hits, his family heads to Egypt for help. And there they get help. They are fed. They are saved. And the line was preserved. Yes, at the end of Genesis, the brothers are reconciled. And yes, Father Jacob learns that his son Joseph wasn't killed after all. But most important is that the family didn't die out through the famine. The promises remained intact. Even though they haven't moved very far in their fulfillment just yet. And that's where Exodus picks up. In fact, the first eight or nine words of Exodus are a direct quote from Genesis 46, 8. These are the names of the sons of Israel. 
It takes us back to where Genesis left off. The sons of Israel in Egypt around the time of Joseph. What's new now as Exodus begins, which by the way is almost 400 years later. There's a 400 year gap between the ending of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And what's new now, almost 400 years later, is that these 70 people have become a great multitude. They were fruitful, verse 7. They increased greatly. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly strong. And the land was teeming with them there in Egypt. So just what God promised long ago is coming to pass. God said, I will multiply your offspring. A dozen times at least in Genesis, God talked about multiplying these people and them being many God's promises have been kept. And yet, from another angle, some parts of this Abrahamic covenant are still very much incomplete. Land was part of the promise. And these many people, impressive in size, they're not in the land. They're under someone else's rule. They're hundreds of miles away from the promised land when they're in Egypt. And they've been there for almost 400 years without moving an inch toward their promised land. And such is the mystery of God's providence and his plan. It's not always according to our predictable timelines or our desired paths. But nevertheless, the plan is sure even when at times it seems to go backwards before it goes forwards. So remarkable multiplication. Secondly, there's fierce oppression. Fierce oppression in verse 8 and following. You fast forward those 400 years or so from Genesis to Exodus and Verse 8, there arose a new king or pharaoh in Egypt who did not know Joseph. Which surely means something like he didn't have any regard for Joseph and that story of rescue through the famine back so many years ago. He had no regard for his people today. He only sees them as threat. He says they are many and they are mighty, verse 9. He says if someone comes against us in battle, they might side with them, and then we'd be in real trouble. And so what to do? Well, enslave them. Verse 11, afflict them with heavy burdens. Put them to work on Pharaoh's cities and his pyramids. Look in verses 13 and 14 how the language is stacked and it's repetitive. They treated them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard service. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Violence is in the picture here. Pharaoh doesn't realize it, but he's both playing God and going against God. He'll soon find that out to his peril. But even now, in our passage, he's beginning to observe the futility of such schemes. 
In fact, we could call this section not fierce oppression, but futile oppression. You see, verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. They enslaved the Israelites. They just kept being strong and many. They made the the pain worse and the work harder, and they just kept multiplying more and more. Have you ever stepped on a spider and seen dozens and dozens of baby spiders run out? My friend Trent Hunter once stepped on a wolf spider inside his house, and lots and lots of baby wolf spiders went out. And when he was telling me the story, he said, I've been killing wolf spiders for months. And I said to him, how do you know one of them isn't going to be a mama? And this happens all over again. And he got real big eyes like he hadn't thought of that idea that, oh yeah, babies do turn into mamas. Well, that's kind of the idea with Exodus 1. A brutally hard day of labor at the pyramids. Well, go home and make a baby. And yet, I don't mean to make light of this. What Pharaoh was doing was not as innocent or as harmless as executing a trespassing spider in your house. And this is really wicked stuff. The enslavement and the physical abuse, the subjugation of those who are made in God's image. We can't overlook or minimize the evils of slavery, either here in Exodus 1 or anywhere else. And yet, neither can we overlook or minimize God's sovereign purposes for this, even slavery, even the wickedness of the Egyptians. God was not asleep at the wheel here. He had not looked the other way for a while. He was very much behind it all, behind the multiplication and behind the persecution. Way back in Genesis 15, in one of those classic Abrahamic covenant texts, God promised this. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." Well, Genesis 15 just gave away the rest of the book of Genesis for us, at least in some small detail. But there it is. God knew, God planned, God promised, God even revealed what would come, and we're seeing it play out now in the book of Exodus. And even the kind of oppression that includes genocide, we can say it's futile and God is sovereign over it. See, in verse 15 and following, Pharaoh commanded the midwives to execute every male born of the Hebrews. Just take that in. How sad, how sick. But thankfully, the midwives, verse 17, they feared God and they would not comply. They even shrewdly fabricate a tale about how the Hebrew women are stronger than Egyptian women and babies just come out with them. You can't get there in time. In this maneuver, like, a, like Rahab, who was hiding the spies in Joshua and was indeed deceptive, this isn't sin. 
This is done in faith. The text commends these women for doing this. And Rahab is commended in Hebrews 11. They risked much because it's better to obey God than man. So if you're in the medical profession these days, I'm sure you're aware that if abortion culture and laws continues to head in the direction it has been, there probably will come a time when you are required to participate. And can you just decide right now that you won't? You just won't. You're not going to go there. You're going to fear God and not the state. Fear God and not your next paycheck or loss thereof. You're going to fear God and not the health board or your employer. Trust God. Do what's right. Damn the consequences. Especially when God can bless and provide with or without Pharaoh's smile. You see verse 20? So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. Doesn't it work similarly today in the church when the world decides to persecute it? Tertullian, in the second century AD, he famously wrote, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, when Christians are persecuted or even executed, it should embolden the rest. It should show us and remind us that this thing is real and this thing's worth living for and this thing's worth suffering for and need be, this thing's worth dying for. Dare I say, like a fungus... Christianity grows best under some heat. That's been proven all through the centuries. Far before the church age, back until, well, the book of Genesis and Exodus, God's people are shown to be God's people and bold people and holy people when they are a suffering people, and a persecuted people. So this wicked campaign of genocide carries over into chapter 2. And now the focus is on one birth, one baby, and this one will occupy the rest of the story of Exodus. So this third section we could call ironic protection. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. It's ironic protection. A Levite woman gives birth to a son, and she doesn't have him killed. She doesn't let him be killed. She hid him away for as long as she could, three months. And then apparently got desperate and thought that this was the safest move. She hid him in a basket. Uh, we could say it's like a miniature ark for one. Right? This is a boat of safety for a baby. She placed him in the river. Ironically, that's what Pharaoh said to do. Cast the Hebrew males into the Nile. But in this instance, she's hoping that the river won't be death and destruction, but salvation and life. Pharaoh's daughter happened to be there in the river bathing. And she came across the baby in the weeds. 
What would she do? There's a real fork in the road moment here in verse 6. This is Pharaoh's daughter. Would she follow the law of the land and dispose of the Hebrew child as her father and as her Pharaoh had commanded all the people? Chapter 1, verse 22. Well, she did not. She recognized that it was a Hebrew and she had pity on him. Providentially and shrewdly, the baby's older sister happened to be nearby. She says, ma'am, shall I fetch you a wet nurse? Pharaoh's daughter says, please. And ironically, providentially, almost poetically, who would she possibly go fetch but her mom, the baby's mom, the birth mom. So this baby was raised by its birth mom at the direction and even the payment from Pharaoh's daughter. It's all dripping with irony. The river is the means of deliverance. Pharaoh's daughter is the means of deliverance. She unknowingly hands off the baby to the birth mom. And even when the birth mom, sometime later on, we don't know when, but eventually brought the child back to Pharaoh's daughter, yes, that would be hard. I can't imagine. We were at someone's house last night for a goodbye uh, event for a child that they have done um, care for for several years and, and now uh, parents show up and want it back and that is heartbreaking. But in this case we can say that the child's presence in the palace means ongoing protection. Ironically the baby is saved from Pharaoh by Pharaoh. He's raised as an Egyptian He's educated in the Egyptian ways. He has everything he could possibly need in Pharaoh's opulent palace. And as we'll see, that becomes more relevant later on in the story. Incidentally, there's another place in the Bible where we find a ruler wiping out babies in order to protect his power. In Matthew 2, Herod, of course, is having all the male children two years and younger killed in hopes that one of them is this so-called king of the Jews. And of course, God protected that child as well. Rather ironically, Jesus was protected by a trip to Egypt. Now back to Exodus, notice that the baby's Name is even ironic. Verse 10, he's Moses, which means I drew him out of the water. A fitting name for a baby who was just drawn out, drawn out of the water. And, and yet many years later, this grown man will need to be drawn out of the waters once again. Now before we move to the next section, I should just say a word and point your attention to the special role of women in these various scenes. Two Hebrew midwives risked their lives to save some infants. A mother and her daughter do the same with their own son and brother. And Pharaoh's daughter had pity on a Hebrew child rather than do what dad and Pharaoh 
had commanded her and everyone else to do. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to us that God's plan to save has always been through a woman and her offspring. From Genesis 3.15, where the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent, to Luke 1, when Mary has the Savior in her womb. Well, there and so many other places along the way, here are just a handful in Exodus 1 and 2, which should make us smile and thank God for strong, courageous women who just keep doing the right thing and trusting God. I'm wishing it was Mother's Day right now, but it's, it's not. It's Super Bowl Sunday, so I won't belong that point and we'll move on. <laughs> Fourth, there's new identification in this passage. New identification. You might notice there's a time gap between verse 10 and verse 11. Acts 7 tells us that it's 40 years or so. It's 40, Moses is 40 years old when it says here he had grown up and, we read on, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. His people, the Jewish people. And from here, we're going to get three different snapshots or three different mini-stories that all relate to Moses' new identity. And in fact, we can anticipate this, that this was coming. Moses, the name, it could be either a Jewish name or an Egyptian name. He had his earliest days as a child raised among Jewish people. And then later childhood was in Pharaoh's palace. Who is this one? Who does he think he is? Who does he identify with? He went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. And then here's the first of three snapshots. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now there's no whitewashing this. There's some good to it. And there's also some not so good. As for the good, Stephen, in his sermon in Acts 7, when he comments on this very event, he says, Moses defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. In Stephen's mind, it's all positive. And surely that is the case that Moses is identifying with this Hebrew over this Egyptian. He's identifying with the suffering Hebrew and not this taskmaster from Egypt. That's good. As for the not so good here, this is most likely murder. This isn't justice. While some commentators see that phrase, he looked this way and that, and they say he was looking to see if there was anyone to help more commentators say he was looking to make sure no one was around, no witnesses, didn't see any, and he killed the man. And then he hid the body. And he hoped that no one had seen it, even among the Jewish people. And by the way, the more we read on in Exodus, the more we'll see that a hot temper seems to be the weak point in this man, Moses. And that's probably the case here. So what we have is a, a firm and bold identification with a suffering Hebrew over against the persecuting Egyptian. 
for better or worse. He went too far. But on a positive level, we can say at the very least this shows that there's little ambivalence with our man Moses about who he is, what side he's on, and who he's for. Second snapshot, verse 13. Two Jewish guys are arguing. Moses steps in and tries to help. Why are you arguing and fighting with your brother, your companion? Of course, it backfires. One of them knows about what Moses has done. They retort, who made you judge? You're going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? Well, Moses suspects that the word is out. And sure enough, it is. Even Pharaoh knows and intends to kill Moses. But Moses flees. And he flees to the land where the Midians were staying. Midianites were nomads. And they stayed mostly in and around the borders of Canaan. Canaan. That's where Moses goes. And it seems rather nonchalantly or inconsequently, that he just sits down by a well one day, verse 15. And now we come to the third snapshot. At this well, seven ladies and their sheep show up. They intend to give drink to their sheep. But some rather rude and possessive shepherds drive them away, or at least they try. Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Moses is a protector. He's a kind of rescuer, even a deliverer. Now we can skip some details that the text has just to get to the point of this section. In verse 21, before long, he's staying at the home of these seven women and their father. Before long after that, he's married to one of them. And now there's a child. So you can gather up these findings from the snapshots. Moses is now in a new place, in a very different environment, a totally different lifestyle. He has a new family, a new wife, a new son. What does all this mean? But he is a man who has a new identity and a clear identity. And if there's any debate about that, well, look at the name of his newborn son. It's Gershom. We don't know what that means, so we're told. For I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. You get this? Egypt now is the foreign land. He was a stranger there when he was in his palatial home. He lived there all his life. Egypt was all he knew. But now, a nomad among the shepherds and priests of Midia. He's not an exile of Egypt who wished he could go back home, but he can't because he's wanted for murder. No, he's a man who has a new identity. He sees a a new people and this new place, and, and this is home. Hebrews 11 describes this situation like this. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, 
choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." In a different kind of way, isn't this sort of a window into and a foreshadow of Christ's incarnation? Christ came from the comforts of heaven to identify with a suffering people and to intervene for them, to rightly kill the enemy, to reconcile those in enmity, to feed and water a hungry and thirsty people and to dwell with us. This is what our Savior did. Moses is just a, a prefigurement of it and Christ is the reality, the fulfillment of it. Isn't this also kind of related and similar to our conversion as a Christian? When we became a Christian, now there isn't a geographic component to our conversion like there was for Moses as he fled from Egypt. It's not like you become a Christian and you have to move to a Christian commune. In fact, you shouldn't. But there is a kind of similar switching of identities when you become a Christian. There is sort of a, a new way to see ourselves. There is a new people to more closely identify with and we may even need to give up certain comforts and advantages that are just too intertwined with Egypt, figuratively speaking. Coming to Christ is coming home. It's a new perspective. It's, it's a new identity. If you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you to think about the gospel from this angle. A new people, a new identity, a new hope, a new purpose. Now how we get there, it's this. Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, was raised on the third day, and he offers that forgiveness to any who will simply believe it to be true and ask to receive it. You can't earn it, you can't work for it. You just simply give up on whatever else you were trying to do to get to heaven. And you cling to what he did to get you to heaven. And if you'll do that, then a new identity, a new people, a new purpose, a new home. And fifth, there's fresh anticipation in our passage. Fresh anticipation. You see, the last few verses, during those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And then hear this. Reckon with it. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that there was a time for God when he had plugged ears and had forgotten and had looked the other way. No, he knows. He has always heard. He always remembers. He never forgets. He sees. But this is covenantal language. 
written sort of from the perspective of man. This is how we operate when we're about to act. We hear, so we act. We see, so we act. We remember, so we act. We know, and so we act. So what this means is that God is now about to act. God was about to step on the gas pedal of his plan. What came before in those 400 years wasn't outside his plan, but God was the unseen operator of it all. We talk about the hidden hand of God in providence, where there is an ordinary orchestration of events And he's no less sovereign over those things than when he pulls back the curtain and steps out in glory for everyone to see. So he had been, you could say, hidden, orchestrating from behind the scenes. And now God's people call out to him, and he is about to step out. He is about to show off, dare we say. He is about to show the world in unmistakable terms that he is God and there is no other. And so there is fresh anticipation here. A lot of the promises are starting to be fulfilled. God keeps his promises. And some here at this point in Exodus 1 and 2, some are still left incomplete, but it's coming. And so it is with us today. More promises have been fulfilled since the time of Exodus. Praise God for that. It would be a good exercise for us to think of promises fulfilled already. They are many. And yet there are still promises to come, ones that haven't yet been fulfilled. Chiefly, Jesus coming again, We're kind of like those same kind of people who are looking back with thankfulness and looking ahead with anticipation and joy and also eagerness. Friend, if you find yourself in trouble this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, call out to God. Believe that he hears and sees. He remembers. He knows. Whether your trouble is sin, whether your trouble is just pain, depression, sickness, poverty, call out to this God in your trouble. Let your groan come before him. He sees, he knows, he hears, he He may just be about to act. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that your word records for us those times when you did pull back the curtain and show yourself unmistakably glorious and powerful. It's so clear in your word. We don't need you to do it today. We can trust your hidden hand. We can trust your ordinary orchestrations in our lives. Lord, we thank you for multiplying us through the gospel. We thank you for your great plan to multiply a people, not of a single race, but of every race. Lord, we thank you for the assurance that we can face any kind of oppression or suffering, knowing you'll protect us as much as you plan to protect us for our good and for your glory. 
Lord, we thank you that you have plans, even in our suffering, for us to call out to you for help and for you to step in and rescue. We thank you for how you've done that time and time again. Great is your faithfulness. Amen.